So it's, it's been a, a crazy few months for me, and I wanted to start out by asking you a question that relates to a funeral that I went to. I've had three people that I knew semi-well pass away recently. Um, some of you might have known them. Uh, Russ Adams was one of them. Uh, he attended church here. Another was Phyllis Switzer. Who here knows Phyllis? Well, I wanted to ask you a question. And it's based on Phyllis's funeral I, I just attended a, a month ago. How ready are you to meet Jesus? I want to ask that question, and then I want to take it a, a direction that you might not expect this morning. How ready are you to meet Jesus? Um, like I said, I, I attended a funeral recently for Phyllis, and um, that impacted me. And here's why it impacted me. Because Phyllis, when I heard her family share about her last days and weeks of her life, she was, she was eager, eager to, to die. Because that meant that she would meet Jesus. And, I mean, Phyllis was a sweet lady. If anybody knows, knows her, she was one of the kindest, sweetest people, right? I mean, every, every service after I was done up here, she would wave me down, and she wanted to tell me how, how much she so appreciated what I was doing up here and what Andrew did and, and how she was praying for me, right? And, and how she was praying for my family, too, because she prayed for my family, and she'd ask how they were. But hearing about the end of Phyllis's life, that impacted me. That, that impacted me more than anything that I ever, any conversation I ever had with this woman. Um, she so wanted to be with Christ that in the end, in the last couple weeks of her life, when she, she would wake up and she would be sad, depressed even, because she wasn't, she hadn't died. And that's, I've not been around much death in my life. I mean, to be honest, before I came here to be a pastor, I had only been to like one funeral. <laughs> um, I, I'm not very acquainted with death, but I've talked to some of you who are very acquainted, and that isn't normal. Am I wrong? That somebody at the end of their life would want to die, not because they're in pain, and not because their life is miserable, and not because they've just come to grips with the fact that they're going to someday, might as well be now but because they are longing to meet somebody when they die, and that there's that peace there, that's rare. And that, that impacted me deeply. And here's why I wanted to ask that question, because I want to ask you guys, do you have somebody in your life like Phyllis? And here's what I mean. Do you, is there somebody in your life, and, and I think is, if, if we're all Christians, those of us who are believers here, I would bet that we all have somebody like Phyllis in our life who, through their life and their witness, deepened our faith and made us more ready to meet Jesus. So that we actually wanted to be in heaven. We had somebody do that at some point, right? Somebody shared the gospel with you. Um, 
And Phyllis, I'm more ready to meet Jesus today because of her. And like I said, I didn't know her that well. And here's the, here's the twist. This is the main question I wanted to get to that I want you to be thinking about this morning. And this is what we're going to talk about in the message. We all have somebody like that probably. What would it take for you to be that person? What would it take for you to be the kind of person where when you die someday, you will have prepared people to meet Jesus by your life, by your faith? I don't know about you, I want to be that person. So we've been talking about John the Baptist, right? That's where we've been for the past couple weeks. The thing about John, his life, his whole life was revolving around that thing. You remember what Jesus said of John? In Luke 7, verse 27, Jesus said, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Right? So, so what, what I'm talking about here is, is that person who's, who's prepared your heart and your, de- deepened your faith, right? That was John's life. That was his goal. His purpose, his mission was to prepare the way for Jesus' coming so that people would be ready. Um, and we know, I think that John knew that because not only did Jesus say that of him later, you know, down the road, but if you go back to Luke chapter 1, because Zachariah, remember Luke's, or uh, not Luke's father, sorry, John's father, you remember Zachariah, the message that the, the angel brought to, John, to, to John's father? If, if you read in chapter 1, it's kind of back towards the beginning, at, uh, verse 17, this is the message, it said, and he will go on, this is talking about John, before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children. Um, It's Mother's Day. That just came to my mind. I mean, how many of you are thankful for a mom whose heart was for you, right? So that was what John was going to do. And then the disobedient to turn them to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, right? So, So that's... That, uh, John's father, that's what he was told. So I have a question. Who here has ever had this talk with your dad or, or mom? I guess it could be your mom too. The son, someday you're going to be a man talk. Anyone? Or daughter, someday you're going to be a mom or a woman. That talk. This, okay, this is just my sanctified imagination. I don't know if it happened this way, but I, I have a thought about how that conversation might have gone with, with John and his father, Zachariah, right? Um, I think at some point, probably, Zachariah, being a godly man, sat down John and said, John, this is what we were told about what you were going to do with your life. Right? We'd expect Zachariah to do that. And, and if that conversation happened, I, I do not think it was this. 
I don't think it was, son, someday you're going to be a man. And you're going to have to care for a family. And, and so you need to work hard and you need to get a good paying job like your dad has. Right? Because that's what you, that's your, your job as a man is to care for your family. And I don't think the conversation he had was, son, someday you're going to be a man. And you know what? Your, your dad, your dad's a farmer. He's a pretty good farmer. And, and, and your granddad, he's a, he's a farmer, right? And someday, son, you're going to, I'm going to pass this on to you, this farm. And it's going to be your job to take, it, take care of it. I don't think that's the conversation that he had. I think it was probably something more like this. Um, probably sat down next to him, actually. Son, you're a miracle. Your mom and, and I, we're, we're old, right? Like, we're really old compared to your friends, mom and dad. We couldn't have kids. There was no way that we could have had you. But guess what? God, God sent someone to tell us that you were coming and that we were going to have you. And he also told us what you're going to do someday. And son, he has huge things planned for you. He's got big things for you because he said that someday you're going to prepare the way for our Savior to come. Now, and I don't know what that's going to look like, son. I, I don't know the details of that. But, but I believe if you stay close to him, if you trust him, he will show you what that's going to look like in time. He's going to show you what your role is. I don't know if it happened like that. But I know that John knew. John knew what his, his role was going to be. I mean, and we, we, we know that because if you look at verse 80 in chapter 1, if you flip forward a page, we read that John grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared to Israel. So, so John, he's, he, he spends his childhood, or the later part of it, and his young adult years living where? Right, to prepare, right? Living in the wilderness to prepare for this mission, this goal that he was supposed to fulfill with his life. And how did he do that? How did John do it? I mean, like, to do what he did, to live that kind of life, he had to give up everything. Right? I mean, every other dream that a young boy might have. How did John have the courage to accept God's call for his life and then to follow through on that call? And we see that follow-through too, right? I mean, how did John have the boldness to stand up in front of a huge crowd of people and call them out on the way that they were living their life? 
I mean, back in those days, people would sometimes get killed for, for challenging a crowd. How did he stand up and, and criticize or condemn the rulers of his day? Herod, King Herod. Remember, Herod's father was the one who went out and murdered a bunch of, of young boys because he was paranoid. And we know John ended up where? What did we just read? In prison, right? Where did he get that courage? To not only accept God's call, but to live that way. I think it was this. I think John knew God has something for me to do. God's given me a mission. He has something for me. Like God has called me to something. And I also think, I think John also knew that God, when he calls you to something, he doesn't call you to a mission that will fail. Am I right? God's not just out there like, I'm just going to put John out there so he can just totally waste his life and not have any impact. So John knew if God's called me to something, that means God will enable me to do that thing, right? And we read that John was filled with, with what? The Spirit, right? He had the Spirit of God in him. right? It makes me think of Psalm 23 where, where God says, or I'm, where, where the psalmist says, though I walk through the valley, can you say it with me, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me, right? I think John knew God is with me. God has something for me to do. Therefore, I can have courage. I can be bold. How different, question, is our calling and our mission from John's? Think about that for a second. We, I just talked about Phyllis, right? And the way that Phyllis was, was looking forward to meeting Jesus, and she was trying to help people be ready for Jesus to meet him, right? How different is our calling from John's. Let me just read you a couple of verses and you can flip with me if you want. Let's let's go to 1 Peter real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. So 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this. It says, "But you this is speaking to us, to the church. He says, you are a chosen people. Okay, so God has chosen you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that, okay, so wait, why did God choose you? Why did he make you his special possession? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his light. So, similar to, 
to John, God is calling us to be a voice, right? A voice not in the wilderness, but a voice where? I heard everywhere. Flip, flip with me to Matthew chapter 28. The end of Matthew. This is the Great Commission, the la- one of the last things Jesus said to his followers before he left. And this is what he says. In verse 18, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So so we've got go, make disciples, baptize, teach, right? Four verbs. How, How different is that from what John did? Not very, right? Um... Final, final verse I wanted to look at. Listen to how Paul describes this mission that you and I have. Flip over to Colossians, if you're following with me. Colossians chapter 1. Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, verse 28. So this is Paul talking about the same mission, same mission we just read. He says, he says, he, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, right? There you have that voice, right? That voice calling out to people. He, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ, So what is Paul saying? He's saying, what is our mission? To prepare people, right? The same thing that John was supposed to do, right? And I know you might be be thinking, okay, well, I'm not a preacher, and I have never baptized anyone in my life, and I certainly do not live in the wilderness and eat locusts and... And, and other bugs, right? You might be thinking, I'm not quite this. I mean, it, isn't there some difference between me and John in terms of what we're called to do? But I would just, if you're thinking that, I'd point you back to Matthew 28. Because what does that, that Great Commission tell us to do? To go into all the world, to preach, to teach, to baptize, Right? So you may not be called to go to the wilderness. We might not be called to that kind of thing. But we are called to go somewhere, right? Maybe it's to your work or the school that you go to. Called to go somewhere with with the message, right? We are not maybe preachers. You might not be somebody whose role it is to stand up every week and preach messages. But you are called to teach them to obey everything that God's commanded and to proclaim, right? Which, interestingly, is the same idea as preaching. Preaching is just proclaiming publicly something is true. That's all it is. There's not a special preaching that is like what pastors do. Pastors shepherd people, and they lead the church, and they teach publicly. But that, 
when, when he says, go proclaim, he's saying, shout it out. Tell people about me. Be bold about me, right? So we are called to that, and we are called to baptize, too. Are we not? And God, I think the church has failed. Not, when I say the church, I mean, I mean the leaders, right, of the church. Through history, I'm not saying our church, I'm saying through history, the leaders of the church, they were the ones doing all these things, right? It was the pastors and priests who were teaching people, only the pastors and priests. It was the pastors and priests who were baptizing, and it was the pastors and priests who would go, right? It was the trained missionaries who would go to other places. So I think the church has really failed. Because when you read that, that Great Commission, you might wonder why, why when we look at the church today do we not see people doing those things? If that's what Jesus commanded us, right? There are people who, many in America, in the church, who've sat through church their whole life and haven't made disciples, really, and haven't taught and even their friends about Jesus and haven't proclaimed him and, and haven't baptized anyone and certainly haven't gone anywhere. So how did we get there, right? Because that's, isn't, am I wrong that this is for all of us? Some people say that the Great Commission was just for the disciples, right? Have you heard that before? Like he was telling them, you guys are the ones who go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's, that's disciples. He's speaking to the disciples, right, in the context. Here's the thing. He says to go where? Yeah, what, where does it say? Everywhere, right? Into all nations. So if you look at the Greek word for all there, the Greek word for all, it means all. <laughs> I know, it's... So, so he's asking us to go, and, and the disciples, that was not them who would go into all nations. This is for the church. This is for all of us, right? That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> so you might... That's heavy, is it not? A little bit. I think we should feel a little bit of weight. Because that is a big task. And you might be sitting there thinking, wait a second. Like, like if you haven't been doing this, you might be thinking, I haven't been doing that. I haven't really been proclaiming and teaching people about Jesus or baptizing. And are you telling me that I've wasted time? You know, you might feel ashamed somewhat, and you might also feel a little bit nervous about stepping out to try to live out that mission, because that is a heavy mission. My goal this morning is not to make you feel ashamed. My goal is to challenge you that this is what God is calling you to do. And, and to encourage you, because God does not call us to a mission that will fail. He does not call us to do something that is not going to work, it is not going to happen, where we will not have the strength to see it through. So, so just like John was confident about his mission, I think we can be confident about our, our mission can I get an amen on that? Amen. We can be confident on our mission. 
You have the Spirit of God in you. You are filled with God's Spirit. If you are a believer, you are filled with the Spirit of God, which means you can do this. And I'm saying that to myself because I go through weeks and I don't do this. Even though I'm teaching, there are times when I'm not proclaiming, especially to the lost world that's right over there. But we can do it. So here's what I want us to look at for the rest of our time today. I want us to look at John's life, and I want us to finally get back to Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at at John's example that he gave and, and the way that he lived and just ask how can we successfully fulfill our mission, okay? We good with that? How can we fulfill that mission? What can we learn from John who is the voice in the wilderness, right? John was preparing people for Jesus coming the first time. We are preparing people for his return, So what can we learn from John about how to do that? How can we prepare people, okay? And so what we're going to look at is three realities, three realities that John lifted up that allowed his message to successfully prepare the way for the Lord. Okay, so three realities. Three realities. And what these are, just a quick word, what these three realities are going to be, they're on your notes, These three realities are gospel realities. So I wanted to say this before we get into them. When I say gospel realities, this is what I'm saying, what I mean. Because the gospel, which is our message, right? Look at your notes. I've I've talked about calling. That's what we started on. Now we're on message, right? We've talked about our calling and John's calling. Now we're talking about our message and John's message, Well, it's because the gospel, our message, right, is what we are supposed to believe as Christians, and therefore where I'm going to get my ability and my strength, right? The gospel is where I get my strength, and because the gospel is also the power of God to save, it is through this message that we will be able to prepare people to meet Jesus, Okay, so you can write this down as a way to remember that. The, messi- uh, sorry, the mission is the message. The mission is in the message. Okay, so if we're going to be successful in our mission, that all comes down to the message that we believe and then share. Does that make sense? Okay, so three realities. Are we ready? These are going to go pretty quick. The first reality that John lifted up and that we need to lift up is the worth of Christ. Look at, look at verse 15 with me. The worth of Christ. It says, The people were, were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more, class... One who is more mighty, powerful, right, than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Um, 
John had a pretty big following of people at this point in his life, right? He had a pretty big crowd. Like he had, he had hundreds and thousands of people coming to him and saying, you know, we love your message, John. Like we want, we were, they, they were there, he was baptizing them. This guy's popular. Um, but what did John do with that popularity? When people came to him and said, are you the Messiah? What was he, what was he super fast to do? No, and, and not just to say no, to diminish himself, right? I'm not the one, right? I'm not the one that you should be looking up to. He says, the guy who's coming after me, who you're supposed to be waiting for, I'm not even worthy to touch his shoe. That's the gap between this one and me. Like, don't, don't elevate me. Remember what he said later in his life? He must increase, I must decrease. And, and he did. He lived that out because we see that as John goes through the rest of his life, he fades out of the picture. He lived that out. He prepared the way for Jesus and then he, I'm out. It's about this guy. The worth, the worth of Christ. I want to challenge you with something this morning. What is the core message of the gospel? Is it Jesus died and rose again? Is that the core message? Here's what I mean by that. There is a deeper reality, I think, that's going on than just the fact that Jesus died and rose. Because you could ask questions like this. Why did Jesus die and rose again? Why was that necessary, right? You could ask that question. Lazarus died and rose again. I die, I will die someday and rise again. So what is the reality behind Jesus died and rose again, right? Why did Jesus have to die? For our sins, okay. So here we're, we're getting to a deeper level. We could say, this might be a deeper core message of the gospel, Jesus died for sin because we were separated from God and he had to take our place, right? And then he rose again and he's calling you to believe in him. Am I right that that's a deeper message, core message of the gospel? I think we can even go deeper. And here's why. You, you can still ask that question of, of okay, so why is sin a problem? And why did Jesus actually, why was he actually able to die for sin? Right? Why did, that, why did that actually work? Jesus dying for sin. Why is sin an issue? Why do I need to believe in Jesus? You know what I'm saying? I believe, guys, the core message of the gospel is this. God is holy worthy. I'm not. So there's a problem there, right? God is holy, I am not. But Jesus, he was also holy. He was worthy. He was able to, because of his worthiness, pay for my unworthiness. That's a deep message. And you might 
Honestly, that, I mean, that's, that seems kind of like nuancing terms, but it really matters a lot because think about this. If you sit down with a friend, let's say you're going to share the gospel with a friend this week, and you sit down with them and you're drinking coffee and the gospel opportunity comes up, right? You've ever had that moment where you're like, I have an opportunity here to say something about Jesus. If you're thinking in your mind, what I need to communicate, the core thing I need to communicate right now is Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and you need to believe in him and trust in him. That's good, but that is very different than if you sat down and what you're thinking in mind is, I need to communicate to my friend that Jesus is worthy. Not me, I'm not worthy, you're not worthy. Jesus is worthy. God is holy. I'm not holy. You're not holy. Jesus, God is holy. Jesus was holy. He did what I could not do. And he is the most worthy thing in my life. And he was worthy enough for God to accept his offering. Hear me on this. What I'm not saying, because the core message of the gospel is not uh, sorry, just because the core message of the gospel is not Jesus died and rose again, that doesn't mean that the core event of the gospel isn't Jesus died and rose again. Do you get what I'm saying? Did Jesus die and rise again? Yes. That is the core event. If that didn't happen, the worthiness of Christ and the holiness of God would mean nothing good for me. Zero good for me if Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise again. That's the core event. That's, that's where the message of the gospel found its reality. But we can sometimes communicate the core events without communicating the core message. Does that make sense? We can communicate about Jesus' death and resurrection without communicating the core message, which is that there is a holy God that we have offended and that we need to have some bridge there. And that's the gospel. So I wanted to, I wanted to share a story with you. Um, my sister, when she was younger, she, my sister Devra, she, you've not met her, you've met Katriel, she's the youngest one. Devra's the middle girl. She was really into ballet, like really, really into ballet. Um, she, she had like a little pink tutu. It was the cutest thing ever. Um, I was in middle school or high school. Um, but my dad one time, he's like, Devra's really into ballet um, and, and she's really into music. So my dad was performing in something called the Ballet Magnificat. Have you ever heard of that? So it's like the, the whole story of the Bible, right? And it's put to dance. It's put to ballet. Um, and then there's, there's a choir. My dad was singing in the choir. So he's like, you know, Devra, she's young. She's like two years old now, or three or four. And she's, she's very easily distracted, right? So we're going to bring Devra to the Ballet Magnificat, but I'm going to also pack this bag. Uh, and, and, you know, the coloring books and the Cheerios, you know, all, all that stuff, right? So he packed this big bag of, of things for, for uh, sorry, Devra to do. And so anyway, we, we go there, and I remember this. I was, I was sitting down the row, and we go there, and it was, it was beautiful, like amazing. But we get to the end of it, and, and Deborah came up to Dad, and, and she was like, Dad, I'm so disappointed. 
or I'm, I'm so frustrated or something like that. And, and dad was like, oh no, I'm, she, she was probably distracted, right? She, she didn't catch everything. And she said, dad, I was so distracted by the ballet that I didn't get to do anything in my box. <laughs> and, my, and my dad found that hilarious, right? But it was, it was a week later that that hit him. He was driving home, and he said that he just started tearing up, and he had to pull off to the side of the road. Um, because he says, it was if God was saying to me, I wish you were more like your daughter, so distracted by the main thing that you can't do anything else. Jesus is the main thing. Is he not? The worthiness of Christ. Jesus is the main thing. Is Jesus your main thing? If people looked at your life, would they know that you believe Christ is worthy? Does he captivate you so much that it's kind of like a magnet? You know, whatever I'm doing, I just keep getting pulled back to to him. He's my main thing. It's kind of like what Paul says, right? The one thing I do is I press forward to the mark of knowing Christ. That's what I do. So reality number one is the worth of Christ. But that's not all that we need to lift up. That's not the only thing we need to lift up. Number two, we also need to lift up the judgment of Christ. Look with me at uh, verse 16 again. At the end of the verse where we, where we paused, um, because John says, he's the one's coming who's more worthy than I, um, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, that's not a popular message. Is it? Some of us might be very hesitant to say that to somebody. Like, really hesitant. Some of us might not have ever said that to somebody. Um, so, so John is, he's, he's giving us two outcomes. What are the two outcomes he gives us here in this passage? I'm trying to get some involvement here. What are the two, the two outcomes? They're very different outcomes. Two outcomes of Jesus coming that we just read. What's the first outcome? Jesus comes, first outcome is, I kind of heard it. Yeah, baptized, and I heard life. Yeah, the baptiz- what he says, uh, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? So what John is doing here is he's, he's quoting from a text that came about 500 to 600 years, it's kind of hard to date, before Jesus. This is a text um, written around the end of the Babylonian captivity by a guy named Joel, or Yoel. We know him as Joel, right? Um, so I'm going to just read briefly 
that text. Uh, Joel chap- is about halfway in, end of chapter one. Um, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then a a few verses later, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what he's telling them is for some of you, the one who's coming, who's mightier than I, for some of you, that means that you're about to experience what God told us was going to happen 500 years ago. That's about to go down. And you're going to be recipients of that. That, that you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's about to happen. But what's the second outcome? In Luke 3. What's the second outcome? Yeah, you'll be baptized in fire. And I should say this right here, just so you guys know, because that's a little bit of a tricky phrase to translate. Um, Some people believe that when it says the Holy Spirit and fire, that's all referring to the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, then the fire, what it stands for, is a purifying fire. Right? Because when God comes into my life, all of the junk, he burns that up. And it goes, right? And what's left is the gold. Whatever he's trying to purify. But I think it's more likely in context, and other people have said this too, that that baptism of fire is referring to judgment. And that's because of verse 17. Because when you read verse 17, it's very clear um, that there's a second outcome. Because he says the winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn. So modern day analogy, right? Who here is a corn farmer or who, who grows corn? Some of you? Oh, like three or four. Okay, <laughs> that's good. I figured it might be like five or six. but um, <laughs> So when you, when you harvest the corn, right, you keep the corn and you get what after that? What's left over? Bunch of stalks, right? Bunch of leaves, a bunch of husks. And what do you do with the husks and the leaves and the sticks? You burn them or you feed them to your cattle, right? They're not good for anything. I mean, cattle, feeding cattle is good for something. I'm sorry. I just offended like the benders. I'm... That's not what I was trying to say. But here's the thing, guys. That message is not popular. Some even find it very offensive. Right? That God is going to burn, if you don't change, that he'll burn you up for that? Who here wants to say that to your friend? I hope some of us might want to say it. And here's why. It's, It is an an unloving thing to say only if it is not true. If it is true, it is the most loving thing you could say. Right? 
Like, is it unloving if, if we left church today, we walked out, and we went across the road to the gas station, we walk in the gas station, and there's a guy with a gun on the cashier, okay? And his hand's kind of shaking. And you know that in, in his mind right now, he is trying to decide, am I going to do this or not? Am I going to pull the trigger? The police are on their way. Am I going to try to kill these people and leave, or am, or am I going to drop the gun? Would it be unloving to go up to him, to that man, and say, I don't know why you're trying, you feel like you have to do this right now. I don't know why you feel like this is the right answer to whatever's going on in your life. But the police are on their way, and you will either receive mercy or justice. If you put the gun down, they will come, and you will, you might have some punishment, but you will walk away eventually. You will receive mercy. If you do this, if you pull that trigger, you are going to receive, in our state or in another state, the death penalty. If that was true, if that was the reality, if you kill this man, you're going to lose your life as well. But if you put the gun down now, there's mercy for you. Would that be an unloving thing to say? Not at all, would, right? That's the most loving thing you could tell that person. If there is something that they are about to do, which the wages of is death, where they're setting themselves up for that, to tell them that death is the consequence, that's loving. Now, the underlying unspoken question that I know some of you probably are asking, especially those of you who don't necessarily believe, because I know there are people here who say that I don't know about that. You might be asking, well, is that really fair, though? Hell? I mean, it'd be one thing if God just ended you, but burning you with unquenchable fire forever, is that really fair? Um, it seems kind of harsh right? I don't know if I would do that to someone. Now, if, there is no way I can answer the weight of that question for you this morning. There's, there's too much, that's a, one of the deepest, hardest questions you can ask, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of it, but I do want to give a few thoughts on that question. Number one is this. Number one is this is an area where, where we have to take God at his word. I might not understand hell. I don't. Being honest with you, I don't. I understand that it is true, though. Why? Because God's, God said so, and everything else God says has proven true. And so it is not my job to figure out why that is the best course. My job is to tell people this is what God has said, right? Amen. Now, part of me not understanding is probably my own pride. It's probably that I don't take seriously enough what it means to rebel against God. And if I understood that the way God understands it, 
how horrific sin is, I, I know my perspective would be different if I understood what he understood. The thing is, I can't solve a Rubik's Cube. But God, he's holding the whole universe together. So there's a gap there in what we can understand. And that's the second thing I wanted to share is just, if it doesn't make sense to you, think about the fact that you're not God. Right? Um, there's a lot more that I could say about that. And, and that we need to, so if you're struggling with that question, what I'm going to invite you to do is talk to somebody. If you're wrestling with that question, my brother, Jesse, who some of you know, he, he wrestled with that question for years about I don't know about hell. But he came out of that wrestling now with a firm belief that that is true. And not because he understands it perfectly, but because God said it. And because God is trustworthy. And here's the other thing that, that I could mention on that. I might not understand why God would do that. But do you know what else I would never think to do if I was God? I would never think to have that person who was my enemy, my rebel, like who was full out against me, and all that is good. I would never think to take the person I love the most who does not deserve punishment and to pour out an infinite amount of punishment on that person I love so that my enemy could be my friend. That would never have occurred to me. I would never have thought if somebody tried to kill my daughter and they were receiving the death penalty, I'll, I'll let my daughter go through the death penalty so that that person can walk. And then I'll raise her from the dead. I still wouldn't have thought to do that. So God is not you, and we are not God. And that leads us finally to our third um, reality that John lifted up, and we've already kind of covered it, so I built it in that way. It's not going to be a whole other 10, 15 minutes. I know I'm, I'm about five minutes out here. So John lifted up the worth of Christ. He lifted up the judgment of Christ. And then number three, he also lifted up the gospel of Christ. And look at verse uh, 18. It said, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So what is the gospel? What does gospel mean? Good news, right. Exactly. Um, that is the, what the gospel is. It's good news. Um, but I wanted us to review what we've already talked about and just to think about what is your gospel and what is the core message of your gospel that you share, okay? So if you look on your notes, there's, there were four points. I left blank. Um, I, I want to fill in really quick. So the first blank that we've already talked about is the judgment of Christ or the judgment of God. That, write that in, the judgment of God. And what you can write next to that is, God is holy, I am not. Right? That is where the gospel begins. Now, that doesn't seem like very good news, does it? But the good news, there's a quote that I heard one time that I like, the good news is bad news before it is good news. The good news is bad news before it's good news. Um, 
we might not read this passage about what John just preached and be like, well, that was some good news. (laughs) But that's what it says in verse 18, that he was preaching the good news to them. And the reason is because it's true, right? John was speaking the truth in love, right? John was telling people the truth. And that's what we need to do. So number one, the judgment of God, God is holy, we are not. Number two in the gospel is the love of God. So the judgment of God and then the love of God. And we didn't really talk much directly about the love of God, but then where I see the love of God, I see it all over in here. Number one, I see it in John's love for this person. Like, the word, he's worthy, right? He is worthy of my love, my adoration, my praise. I also see God's love in the, the he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Like, that is the most profound reality that in existence today. And you know what I mean if you're a Christian. If you're not, you might think, we're all just deceived. Like, we're all just crazy. But if you are a believer, you know what it means for God's presence to come live in your heart, to change you, to save you out of, like, the way, the lifestyle you were stuck in. Those addictions and, and, and sin habits that were controlling you and to get you out of that and to change your life and to give you a presence and a peace that, that gets you through anything. Because God is with you, right? Because his spirit is in you. So that's the love of God. The love of God is that he promised that 600 years before Jesus came and a thousand years before that when he said uh, one is coming who's going to deal with sin when he told Abraham that there was a savior that was coming. So, so judgment of God, the love of God. Number three, number three is the worth of Christ. That, that he was worthy when I could not be worthy. My salvation depends on him, not on me. And then number four, the last element of the gospel is the call to faith. The call to faith. And we, we didn't see that directly in this passage, but John's main message, right, that Andrew talked about the past two weeks was what? What was John's primary message? Repent. Repent. Yes, exactly. That was what he was telling people, and that's what we need to tell people. That's speaking the truth in love. So, guys... Are you preparing people for Jesus' return? If, if somebody looked at your life, would they know Jesus is worthy? Would they know by looking at your life, Jesus is worthy? And would they know by looking at your life that you had modeled what it means to turn from sin to God and repent. So that's my challenge I want to leave with you today because I think, again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty and heavy and 
I don't know if I could ever do this. I'm saying God has that mission for us to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and he will enable us to do that by his spirit. All right. Um, you were going to give a short word, but if the praise team could make their way up so we can get the... I feel weird being the one who actually say, says that. <laughs> I'm not usually the one who says that.